You ask somebody to be in your wedding, and then they roast you at the podium. <laughs> and they don't lower the mic because you're two feet shorter. The, uh, and then they insult you about the way you looked after you've left treatment. The, uh, so, but thank you, Drew. It is an honor and a privilege <laughs> to be here. The, uh, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Neil Perez. Amen. Uh, it is good here. It's good to be sober. Greensboro is near and dear to my heart. It's where I got sober. Um, so it's good to see some familiar faces, some folks I didn't expect to see, you know. The, uh, I've been away for four years now. Um, and then seeing some new faces, too. I'm surprised to see so many familiar faces, though, because I didn't know if folks were going to stay sober when I left. Because uh, of all the help they gave me, right? The, uh, I'm no longer a legend in my own mind. The, uh, so the preliminaries, I have a sobriety birthday. It's July 21st, 2009. I have a home group. It's a primary purpose group in Southern Pines, North Carolina. We meet twice a week. Monday night, 7 o'clock, Thursday night, 7 o'clock. Monday's a breakout meeting, um, and we break out into big book, discussion, or beginner. There's some old war horses in there and some new blood, too, so it's real healthy. And we, we try real hard to carry the message into the prisons, into different institutions, and then help the, the new folks coming in. And then Thursday night, similar to this, it's a speaker open meeting so family, friends can come. We always have good cake on Thursday, and if you hit it on the last Thursday, of the month, that's when we give out chips and all the real good desserts are there. So we'd love to have you look us up. The, uh, you know, the book tells me a few things about the way I'm supposed to go about this thing. I've got it up here. I'm not going to read from it. It's just my comfort blanket. The, uh, but it does give me explicit directions on about everything I need to do the, uh, and what I should say up here. So it talks about how it works. You know, we describe in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what we're like today. But on the last page of there is a solution. It also talks about that in the personal stories, each person tells about the personal experience and how they came to find God from their own point of view. And that's been a real big part of this journey for me. Um, and it's an ongoing thing. And I tell you, that was not something I was ready and willing for when I first came in the rooms. I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting when I was 19 years old. Um, and about the size of this room, folks could still smoke in meetings then. And it was a clubhouse down in Aberdeen. And I was kind of dragged there. I wanted to keep everybody satisfied, you know. Yeah, I might drink a little too much, but it's just a phase, you know. I'm just a college binge drinker, that's all. The uh, But some folks found it fit that I should go, and so I walk in there, and, and everybody's lighting up, and they're smoking, and I think everybody's, you know, 60 years plus, and here I am, this, this young kid, and I don't remember a whole lot about what was shared in that meeting. Um, I remember the smoke, so I knew I wasn't an alcoholic because I didn't smoke cigarettes, the, uh, but I remember, I remember one guy, and he had been sober three days, and he was just shaking. I just saw his foot just going, and he was about to jump out of his chair. And I thought, that poor guy, he, he must be an alcoholic. The, uh, and then you fast forward a year later, I, I just kept on drinking and doing what I was doing and tearing up relationships and, and myself. And, and I went back to that very same meeting, and there was that same guy. And that's the kind of transformation that I, I wanted to have. Um, 
So the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous started working in my life before I really even wanted it to. It's only when I became willing that I could acknowledge that kind of deal. The, uh, I'm fairly anecdotal, so I'm, I'll warn you on that. I don't always have a real linear narrative, but I'll try to start from the beginning and uh, track through this thing. And, you know, hopefully someone will realize or, or think to themselves, yes, that happened to me. Or, yeah, I felt like that. But most importantly, like the preface talks about, yes, I can have this thing too. Um, because that was a cool thing for me. So I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, right about in the middle of the state. Had it, you know, youngest of three boys. So it was a, a pretty rowdy house and, and two loving parents. Um, had a good marriage, still have a good marriage. And it was the kind of family where it was important for us to sit down at dinner every night or at least when we could, you know, and, and they tried to teach me right. They gave me what I needed, most of what I wanted, and uh, they were loving. My brother's not so much, the, uh, but it was good. I learned real early on what not to do from my brothers. Say, okay, they get in trouble when they don't make good grades, I'm going to make good grades. They get in trouble when they talk back. I won't talk back. So I watched them and learned, and, and I was the baby, so I was probably coddled a little bit. The, uh, and it helped probably engender some selfishness and self-centeredness because uh, I could get away with more than they could. And I think my parents were just flat wore out from them too. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of, I, I like to watch a lot, and I like to perform and make people happy, and I wanted to be happy with the way. I wanted other people to be happy with the type of person I was. That was always real important to me. I was never really concerned with, like, the person I am. I was more concerned with what you thought I was, even from the very beginning. You know, I don't think back and say, yeah, I had a discontented childhood and I was restless, but things did manifest themselves that I now see are selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking. You know, I like the limelight. I like to perform well. Um, I excelled in school and athletics, and... Uh, and that was important to, to the people that loved me, and so I wanted to make them proud. So that's what I did. Um, not a whole lot of drinking in the house. The I come from. I have some grandparents and uncles that um, it could be argued strongly that they are alcoholic. And my father, growing up, seeing that having an absentee drunk for a father, swore he was never going to do that. And his brothers that were running dope and stuff, he wasn't going to do that and make his mom sad. So he, he, he ran the straight and narrow. Um, so he stayed, he stayed away from it. And I remember a conversation we had early. We used to walk the dog together at night. And he'd say, you know, you're getting to that age where your friends and you are going to start getting into some things that maybe only adults should do. He said, I understand that. I just want you to know that, you know, I never wanted to lose control. He said, that's why I never did it. He said, I saw the hurt and pain it caused my family. He said, and that's why I never exposed you to that. And so I'm 13, 14, thinking this is a pretty heavy conversation. The, uh, but, but I took note of it, and, and that idea of control really hit home with me. I thought, okay, you know, I always need to be composed. I need to put on this good facade so everybody knows, you know, that I'm in control and things are okay. Um, but the, the thing that happened when I took that first drink and felt the effect produced by alcohol, it felt like control. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't slurring. I wasn't stumbling. It was a good feeling. And uh, so I could never quite marry those two together. 
you know, control, lack of control. Everything felt right when that happened. Um, I took my first drink when I was 16. Remember it like it was yesterday. Um, that's when my personal adventure started, right, like the book talks about. The uh, only alcoholics call it a personal adventure. Um, I was 16, and nothing extraordinary happened. Um, I was with a bunch of buddies. A lot of my buddies started drinking well before me. They were bringing water bottles full of vodka to school, and I thought, that is outlandish. What kind of person behaves like that? You know, and it was one. It was a Friday night. We're at the the senior girl or the junior girl's house. We were sophomores, and that was a big deal. I was like, all right, tonight's the night. You know, all my buddies they kind of walked me through it, coached me up on it. You know, I was I was the novice because things prior to this, I was very focused. I'd go home do schoolwork. I was playing a lot of sports. The uh, you know, go to school work out all day, you know, do the, the team thing, wake up in the morning, work out, go to school day in, day out. And so one Friday night, the seasons were over, and all my buddies were like, Neil, you got to do it, you got to do it. And I said, okay. And so I went into that first drunk with the intention of it being my first drunk. The, uh, I don't know if that's an indication there, but I just remember that. And so, so I kind of went at it with a vengeance, and it was Everclear and uh, Hawaiian Punch. Um, <laughs> I'm a little older now. I just turned 30 the other, other week. The, uh, so we used to call it uh, PJ, which is party juice. I don't know if that's still around. It needs to be banned. Um, but, it, but it sneaks up on you. You know, they put the fruit in there, and the argument is that the alcohol content kills all the germs from everybody's hand dipping in there. Um, but it was from one of those team coolers that you see on the end of a baseball bench or a football bench, you know, that says Gatorade on it. And this was way better than Gatorade. And it made me feel a lot better than Gatorade, too. Um, there was no earth-shattering thing that happened. Um, I was with a bunch of my good friends who are still my friends today. They saw me get crazy. Um, and we had a few drinks. We went home. I went to sleep, and I had a little headache in the morning. And I didn't think to myself, oh, I'm going to do that again. You know, I'm going to do it again tonight. But what I did think is, okay, I can add that to my repertoire. Like, you know, this, this is a, a once-in-a-month kind of thing because what it did is it loosened that knot inside of me. I was real concerned with what you thought about me or what I thought you thought about me. Um, and that can eat somebody up. It, it ate me up, and I didn't know it yet. I just thought that's how everybody was, you know. Um, I was just, it was all the self-imposed pressure and it just released that tension. So I was like, you know, once a month, it's like my vacation. Um, and so that's when I was a sophomore in high school and things didn't really take off till I went off to school. You know, I continued on that straight and narrow path and all my buddies were getting busted with, with drugs and alcohol and open containers and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, getting the cops called, going to jail and, I remember conversations with my parents like, what, what are they getting into? You know, it's just, it's funny now because they were about to experience some stuff. Um, <laughs> that was light work. Um, and so I go away to school and, and all bets were off. You know, the book talks about we arrived, the moment of our arrival. And I remember it like it was yesterday. So I, I'd worked really hard and you know, excelled academically and athletically, academic scholarship. I was wrestling. Um, 
and I'm at a party, and it's a Thursday night. I'd never drank on a Thursday night. That was a big deal. It's like, oh, man, I'm drinking on a Thursday night. And I look around. I'm at this party, and I got a buzz on, and and I'm around all these cool people or what I perceive are, are cool people, and and I'm at this great university, and I'm wrestling, and, and I'm in school and all this stuff, and I had arrived. That was it, you know. Um, everything seemed to culminate to that moment. And it's funny, shortly after that, the other things started to mean a whole lot less to me, and drinking meant a whole lot more. So I muddled through my first year of school and, and did poorly, got put on my scholarship for both wrestling and academics was put on probation. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up having to speak with the dean of students and that whole deal. And so I went back home for the summer and, and worked really hard and, and made some good money and, and got my life back on track or so I thought. And then I went away to my sophomore year of school and things just continued to go downhill. Um, and that first year, the way I was drinking, like I said, it wasn't a once a month thing anymore. It became Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then it became Sunday. And then it became, you know, well, if I'm not competing or if I don't have to make weight, I can drink and there's other things I can do where I don't have to worry about my weight. If you catch my drift, um, those outside issues, which I, they were like my, my vitamins to my meat and potatoes of whiskey. Um, and so sophomore year, I was right around, I was 19 and things went downhill real quick. Um, got involved in some other things as well. And I I became a daily drinker. Um, it's just the way it progressed in me and started drinking every day. Um, you know, 12-pack, then a case, then just switch to whiskey and all that. Um, and I remember the book talks about the time when we crossed that invisible line. And this clock is not working. The uh, Crossing that invisible line. And I remember clear as day. So a year before was my moment of arrival, and almost a year to that day was the moment when I realized I had crossed that line. And so it was 7.30 in the morning because you couldn't buy liquor before whatever time it is um, or alcohol. And all the kids, it's a spring day, and all the kids are walking to class, and the trees are blooming, and everybody's in their prime and happy. And I'm coming back from the convenience store with a case of beer in my book bag. And, uh, and I just said, this is what it feels like to be alone. You know, around 20,000 other kids, and I felt utterly alone. Um, so shortly thereafter, some friends of mine made a call to my parents and I medically withdrew from school. And we began this merry-go-round of therapist, me wet in the couch because I was drinking so much at night, you know, um, and then pissing my parents off and not showing up. And, and I, was, I was just wreaking havoc in their, in their lives um, in, so, in all sorts of trouble. And then came the DUI where I rolled the truck and nearly died and doesn't even phase me, and I just keep on drinking. Um, and my parents are floundering. They don't know what to do. And, like, you know, we've had that talk, my dad and I, when I was 13 and 14, and he can't understand why I keep drinking. Um, you know, how did I go from there to there so quickly in a matter of a couple years? And there's a lot in between. So I started getting into legal trouble, and it, it just progressively got worse. So... Eventually, you know, I went to my first treatment center. 
So this is when I'm 20. I've been to my first AA meeting. I've seen that guy in the transformation, and I get sent away. And that's the way I viewed it. I got sent away for 30 days to my first treatment facility. It was a locked unit. And for about the first week, I was like, oh, you know, everybody's overreacting. I'm not really an alcoholic. I'm just going through a rough rough patch. You know, what kind of rough patch am I going through? Like, I was born on third base, you know. I've lived a charmed life, and poor pitiful me, you know. Um, and I became that victim. So after week one, I realized they're not taking the bait. Like, they don't understand that I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, so I switched my tune real quick, and I started to pick up on those phrases and what do you say and how do you say it and how do you look like you really mean something. And uh, it was a Thursday night, and it was a family group, and my parents were driving four hours to come to family group every Thursday night after they worked a full eight- or ten-hour day. And... uh, My mom just said, when is it going to stop? And we're in front of this big group. You know, everybody's there. And so what I say, I I rattle off some stuff, and I just say something to the effect of, I just lost something somewhere somewhere along the way. And anybody familiar with Johnny Cash knows that that is a line from Sunday morning coming down. Um, And and it worked. And And it worked. And uh, I, went, I went to get my, my meds that next morning, the, uh, and the counselor said, great breakthrough last night, Neil, great breakthrough. <laughs> and I, I said, what can I say? You know, I, I've seen the light. The, uh, but, but that was my MO. There again, there comes that, that deal of I can give you what I know you want to see. And I'm dying on the inside. I don't realize it. I can't accept it yet because I haven't had enough pain. So three days after I left that locked unit, I went over to my buddy's house, and you know what happens. The uh, two beers, three beers, and then you disappear. Um, and that, that's kind of what went on. Um, tried wilderness therapy. That didn't work. Um, was sent to treatment center number two, which was the hall. Um, so glad to have you guys, and the hall's a near and dear place to me. Um, but this time was for real, because within that, you know, one-year span of Treatment Center 1 and the second treatment facility, there was a lot of things. The, the drinking stopped working, you know. I was putting down a whole lot of beer, and I couldn't stay employed, um, and I just reached that point where not even that would take away this pain that I couldn't explain. And, uh, and I couldn't stop. And so I asked to be sent to, to somewhere, anywhere. Lock me up. I just don't want to drink anymore. I cannot do it, whatever it takes. You know, I was at that jumping off place. Can't live with it, can't live without it. I don't, I've heard about a lot of bottoms and everybody's got their own. But I think Bill's is such a good analogy where he talks about quicksand stretched all the way around you know and and he I wish he'd carry that to the end because the thing about quicksand is the more I struggle to try to overcome it myself the deeper I sink and so for the first time I became willing and there's a lot of stuff and a lot of pain that happened in between there but uh I stopped you know I surrendered 
And what happens with quicksand? You get to the top. Somebody throws you a life rope and you can get pulled out. So what I tried to do was was what they told me at the hall. Um, got out of there. That's when I met Drew. And uh, that was an interesting conversation the first time I ever met Drew. The uh, I was We were driving back to the recovery house, and uh, when you first meet Drew, he doesn't always talk a lot. And so I was thinking, Lord of mercy, what, what have I gotten myself into? Like this? <laughs> but it, it's, it's been an amazing thing and all the folks I've got to meet. So what I did is, is what they told me to do in the hall, what they told me to do at that first treatment center, and what they told me to do at that Alcoholics Anonymous meeting when I was 19 years old. Go to meetings, get a home group, get a sponsor, work the steps, help other people, right? And I finally called on. Maybe I should just try what, what they're suggesting, you know. Um, that guy that I saw the transformation in when I was, you know, four years before I ever was ever willing to get sober stuck in my mind. Um, so I did those very things. Lived in a recovery house, was with a great group of guys. A couple of them are here tonight. Um, I got a sponsor. They say, get a sponsor who, ha- who has what you want. And, you know... I didn't care about money. I didn't care about a nice car. I didn't care about this or that. This guy was 6'6". I said, I want to be tall. (laughs) No. I I saw him. I saw him at a lot of meetings. And he was always happy. And he spoke to everybody. And he could look folks in the eye. And it was a long time since I could do that. And uh, he came up to me, kind of accosted me, cornered me in a room. You got a sponsor? Nope. You want one? And my mind is, is playing. No, but I should say yes. And so I said, yeah. He said, okay. Do you want to stay sober? I said, yeah. I said, now what? He said, call me tomorrow. I said, okay. And... Uh, and that's how the relationship began. And so I got the sponsor, and then I joined his home group because I needed somebody who would hold me accountable and know that I was showing up. You know, the, uh, it was the Piedmont group, and back then we were meeting. We had the big book, then the beginners meeting on Tuesday, and then the Friday night step discussion. And they got me involved real quick. And uh, what they did is they made me start showing up with guys. I wasn't sober enough yet to have the keys to the church to set up. There was a time limit on that because who knows what you would do. Who knows what I would do. And uh, so I had to go with like a buddy who'd been sober longer than me. And it's Friday night, you know, and here I am, big time college guy. And, you know, I still have that holier than thou attitude. It's Friday night, eight o'clock. But it's really 6.30 because I have to be there an hour and a half ahead of time to set up. And so, so we start setting up the chairs. And I, I'm trying hard at this thing, you know, and I want to stay sober. I don't understand it, but I want to do it. So I make my first pot of AA coffee. And nobody told me how to do it. And so I eyeballed it. And it didn't look strong enough. I'm an alcoholic. So I added a lot. And I, my sponsor got there early, and I just wait to see. Like, he's going to be proud. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing the deal. I'm doing the deal. I want to impress him, right? That's my M.O. 
And he takes a sip. He was like, who made this coffee? <laughs> he, said, he said, people in AA can have a heart attack with this stuff. Like, they're, they're, we have put our bodies through a lot. And I was offended. Like, it hurt, I was sensitive. It hurt my feelings. You know, so, so before we started working the steps, he got me involved in that footwork, which was good for me, and, and the fellowship. But not shortly thereafter, we started to sit down. I went over to his house, and we started getting in the book. And he made me read to him because he said he had read it enough and that I needed to read it. So that, that irked me, but I read it to him. And he smoked, and he'd sit in that recliner, and he'd smoke cigarettes while I'd read. You know who I'm talking about. The, uh, <laughs> and he'd just nod, close his eyes, and just nod. And I'm thinking, I don't know how this is working, but I'm staying away from a drink one day at a time. Right. So we go back through one. We go back through two, even though we've worked it at the hall. And then we have to get on our knees on three, made a decision. And I'm still a little, you know, the group can be my, my higher power, but I'm not into the, the G.O.D. or what Silkworth calls powers that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Like, I know what he meant when he said that. And you're trying to get me to believe in God. The... Uh, you know, because God really had no utility for me ever. He couldn't get me what I wanted, when I needed it, how I wanted it. I grew up from the church I went to. It was about a quarter mile from my house, and that was kind of emblematic of my relationship with God. Quarter mile up the road, just in case I need you. Otherwise, we're good. Um, but we got on our knees, and we made the decision, um, and it was something to do that with another guy. And my thought process is, okay, I'm not there yet, but I know this guy is. This guy is, and I, I can get on board with that, and, and I'll believe in whatever he believes in. But, you know, as we, we kept working the deal, and we, we did four and five, and, you know, we went through all of it. I'm going to speed up a little bit. So it was a great year, 13 months, right? And all these great things happened while I was staying sober. You know, I got back in school. I had a meeting with the dean of the students who said, this is your last chance, and he cursed at me. The, you know... I got a job. I got a really good internship that summer after being sober for nine months. And so I had, I had accumulated all this stuff again, and things were good. And there goes that ego. I got this. I got this. So, so I went away, and I worked this job, and it was about 45 minutes from anywhere. And so I didn't go to meetings. I stopped calling my sponsor. I stopped working the steps. We went through all 12. I had been sponsoring guys. I stopped going to meetings. And next thing you know, I'm on a six-day bender, and I'd like to tell you what happened, but I blacked out for six days. And I was found in a crack motel, and by the grace of God, I'm still here. The last thought I had was, I've got this bottle, and I bet you I can drink so much that I won't wake up. Because I, I had gotten to the point so quickly, I got disconnected from everything. Insanity returned before I ever took that drink, and I had to drink because it was my solution. I remember talking to a guy. He said, I don't understand how, how you can relapse. And insanity returned before I ever touched a bottle. And the book talks about the bottle is just a symptom. And so it wasn't a long drunk. I only drank for about a month. That was it. But I had never been a blackout drinker. I'd always been a maintenance drinker. You know, it was my, it was my thing, 24-7, seven days a week. Just kind of try to keep that steady line and then drink enough to pass out at night. That's all I wanted, you know. Nobody knew where I, where I was, but I was discovered. Um, and so I detoxed on my parents' couch. 
went through the good old DTs with slapping bugs. I, I swore people were after me. I'd occasionally run around the house. Um, you know, and those same parents, um, I know there's all, it takes all types, but they loved me through it all, and my dad stayed up 48 hours straight with me to make sure I didn't do anything crazy. Um, and when I came to, so I remember that last time where I'm going to drink myself to death. And then when I came to, was at my parents' house, didn't know how I'd gotten there, but I was rummaging through a medicine cabinet so I could find Listerine because I needed a drink. That's how much the disease progressed in one year's time. And my only thought that got me through that those DTs and the fog and the fear was, I know if I get back to AA, everything will be fine. Um, and so I went back through the hall. I'm a retread. It was suggested maybe something long-term would be a little bit better for me. I was a hard case. I said, no, the, uh, I just I wanted to get locked up away from the drink because I didn't think physically I could do it by myself. And, and that's exactly right. By myself, I can't do anything. I never gathered that. I didn't grasp my true powerlessness until that last drunk. So now today I'm grateful for it. So grateful. And so I did the same thing that they told me the first time in the hall. And I did the deal, you know. Um, I worked the steps. I had the same sponsor. I called him from the hall. The same guy that's smoking cigarettes, falling asleep in his recliner. I called him while I'm in the hall, and he knows, he's heard that I've, I'm in. And uh, he just says, mm-hmm. <laughs> Looks like we need to work on step one. And uh, that's exactly what I needed to hear. It was time to get to work. You know, there was no more of this coddling um, A taught me how to grow up, and that was a good, good thing. So I walked back through the steps with him, started working with guys, and uh, I ended up getting back into school. And uh, by this time, I'm, I'm 23. And everybody, my friends, my parents, relatives, are begging me not, not to walk back into the lion's den. You know, but I had, a, I had a talk with my sponsor and a couple old-timers, and they said, Neil, the whole point of AA is to teach us how to live. It's about freedom. And they said, you treat that school like it's AA. Go early. Ask questions. Sit in the front. See if you can help somebody else. Stay late. And I bet you'll do all right. You know, because the difference between me carrying a, a case of beer in my backpack across campus to three, four years later was a different person. You know, AA, AA had helped change me. And this was after a year of staying sober. And what I did is I commuted every day because I knew I needed to come back to Greensboro where my home group was, where all my friends were in AA. And that's what I did. And I finished, you know. Um, and a lot of good things have happened since I've, I've been willing to do the deal. And that's the big thing for me is willingness. You know, I can get caught up in accumulating all these things and, and, and succeeding at what I think is success. But AA has helped me change those barometers and what success really is. Um, quiet down. The... Uh, 
And uh, I met my wife in Greensboro. Told you about school. The, uh, and then I started moving. Um, or we started moving, you know. Got a job down in Southern Pines and, and did that for a year. And it just wasn't a good fit. Um, and so I ended up switching jobs and, and started traveling all over. Um, so I spent some time in Charlotte. And then moved out to Arizona. I actually just moved back from Arizona. And I tell you, it's tough out in Arizona. I know I'm an alcoholic because the first time I walk into a convenience store, I go to check out, and there's just liquor bottles. They sell liquor in gas stations in Arizona. Like, I'd be dead if I grew up in Arizona. (laughs) You know, at at least ABC curtailed my drinking. And, like, can't do it on Sunday, just beer. I have to save save some, and that won't be enough to do any damage, you know. But this was wide open, and that's how I knew, okay. Um, and it was real important for me to get involved right away in AA because I didn't do that in Charlotte. I lived in Charlotte for about nine months, and the company transferred me to Phoenix. And, uh, and I didn't get involved like I was in Greensboro and the, the primary purpose group in Southern Pines the first time. And I didn't drink, and I went to meetings once or twice a week, but I didn't get a good core group of guys, and I didn't get a good sponsor. I didn't get a sponsor, period. And I just kind of muddled around, and I started to sit in a lot of pain. So the first thing I did when I went to Phoenix is I started going to AA meetings because this has been a process for me. You know, one of the stories in the back talks about, you know, AA's, it's not about not drinking. It's about living sober, recovering, and being free. And that's what I've started to learn. At first, I just wanted to stay sober and not drink. That's all I cared about, you know. But the longer I stay sober, you know, drinking's not an option. But I've got to find a good substitute. And every sponsor I've had has been just the right guy at the right time. You know, I've tried to stay willing through it all. But, you know, sometimes we just got to be met where we're at. And Phoenix was, you know, kind of a confluence of deals. I had just experienced some pain, not hitting meetings in Charlotte. And I met this guy. He had had been sober 20-some years. He's from New Jersey. And uh, and he he had a real soft way about him. If you're from New Jersey, I apologize, but it wasn't like your typical Jersey guy, right? (laughs) He had the nice haircut, uh, but he was real gentle. And he talked. <laughs> he helped me a lot. He's a he's a good person. The uh, but he was very soft and very gentle. And we started going back through the book, you know. And what we started to focus on was ten, eleven, and twelve, because my God had always been out there. Whether it was right up the road at the church, you know, or my my sponsor's higher power, um, or the group. You know, I always had this concept of of something greater than myself, but what never occurred to me and what he helped me experience, not just think about and intellectualize, but feel at a gut level, was that God, as I understand him, is also part of me, you know. Um, And that was really the first time that I truly didn't feel alone. And that took some time, and it it took some, some years in AA, you know, but it's been a process, and what a great journey that is, you know. 
And if I keep doing this thing one day at a time, who knows? I'll, I'll look back and say, when I made that talk in Greensboro, I was sick as hell. The, uh, <laughs> but that's just kind of how this deal works, you know? The folks in AA, the first time I came in, tried to wrap, wrap their arms around me, and I wanted no part of it. The second time, I was kind of in. And then the third time, you know, everybody still welcomed me back. But when I became willing and the pain was great enough, things started changing. And so now I really get at a gut level what folks talk about. It's an inside job, you know. The, uh, it's a great, you know, I ended up finishing school, and, and that, a lot of that's because AA are great, you know. I'm employed and all that. Um, and my mom used to say this to me. You know, people drop these messages all the time, but AA is the, the group that helped me realize this. Like, take all that away. Who are you and what are you? And that's the kind of questions that AA helps me answer on a daily basis. Um, so when I started getting into 10, 11, 12 and just sitting down and sitting with myself and not going, 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 got to do this, got to do that, my life was a list, right? It's no way to live. It's not real full. It might be productive, but it's not a happy place. The, uh, and he helped slow me down, and he'd say things like, how are you? You know, and we'd talk about that. Um, so it's just kind of been that next phase, and, and it's been a real gift, you know, um, and it was necessary. The, uh, I'm almost out of time. So that's kind of just where I was, you know. The desert's a spiritual place anyway. Everybody talks about go out west and get spiritual, and I think it's so tacky, and then it happens. The, uh, <laughs> so who knows? Go out west and get spiritual. Um, but it's been good. So what it's like today, so um, still married, obviously. She puts up with me. The uh, Still employed. The, uh, we, we, we had a little one about six months ago, almost to the day. So now I'm a dad. And uh, now it really helps that A's taught me to be a little less selfish the, uh, because that's, that's really a 24-hour-a-day a job. Um, and I want to leave you with this thought. I know time's just about up. The, uh, so when I first, the first time I got out of the hall, I was given one of those little cards. It was a reprint of 417, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, et cetera, et cetera. I used to wear that thing out. I'd pull it out of my wallet and say, you know, my mom would call and she'd piss me off and I'd pull it out and I'd read it, you know. Or she'd just call to talk and I'd call my sponsor and I'd be like, why is she calling me? She's checking up on me. And he just said, Neil, she's your mom. The, <laughs> it's like a simple AA, you know, I've, there's a problem that centers in my mind. Um, I'd wear it out. And uh, so we're, there's some, some complications with the birth, at least what we think are going to be complications. The... Uh, we went to the to the doctor for the final checkup. The next day was the day, you know, and I'd been in contact with all sorts of folks like, yeah, we're ready, we're ready. Baby wasn't moving, and so we think, oh, no. Um, so we're rushed to the to the ER, and the doctor says, just meet us there. We just want to do some more preliminary tests. You know, I've been, I've been blowing smoke long enough that I've realized when other folks are blowing smoke, the... Uh, and next thing you know, there's, there's three doctors and, and seven nurses around us saying, oh, we got to get you cleaned up. We're going to go ahead and uh, do this thing right now. Baby's not moving. We don't know why. 
Um, and my wife and I had a minute. She's in the program. And for some reason, I don't know why I said it. I just said, nothing in God's world happens by mistake. Absolutely nothing. And that's, that's towards the tail end of that 417 deal. And uh, I said that. I said it more just to try to comfort her. You know, I didn't know what was about to happen. I didn't know if it was going to be the last time I talked to her, but it, things were serious. And uh, they, they shuttle her back to the ER and, or to the operating room, and I, I'm sitting there for a minute. And this is, this is when all this work is paid off. And I'm sitting there. I said, God, I don't know about all that stuff I just said. Um, I like to think it's true. But I just don't know. And all I can ask of you right now is to be of some use. Good, bad, or indifferent, whatever happens. Just help me be helpful. Um, and nothing had ever happened like that. And I was thinking about it the other day. And, you know, the book talks about certain trials and low spots. Everything worked out fine. He's, he's healthy. He's big. He's got a giant head. The, uh, he's over two feet long, so he's almost as tall as me. Um, it's true. It's true. So see, he's already a third, like, up to me. So it's scary. Everything's great. But it's those certain trials and low spots, and it's not so much what happens in my life, but how I respond to it. And that's exactly what AA has done for me. Um, I'm so grateful to be back in Greensboro and see all you guys. And if you're new, I hope you keep coming back and and just learn from my bad example and and do this deal one day at a time and walk with us. And it's, it's a cool, cool journey. And Mr. Drew, congratulations. The, uh, it's been a cool ride, and you've been rock solid. So thank all of y'all. Have a good night.